This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, what comes into your head when I ask you this question? Who are you? If you're like me, your most immediate thoughts have to do with age, gender, race, and culture. I'm American, for example. I'm a woman. I'm in my 30s. And so on. But what all those things mean, really? Today on Fordham Conversations, we are looking at the idea of who people think they are and how they express that. Now, give me a word. Any word, and I show you how the root of that word is Greek. Okay? How about arachnophobia? Arachna, that comes from the Greek word for spider, and phobia is a phobia, is mean fear. So fear of spider, there you go. Okay, Mr. Portocollis, how about the word kimono? We'll flesh out that clip from the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding in a few minutes with a look at what it means to one Brooklyn mother and daughter to be Greek-American. But first, Fordham English professor Kim Hall has spent the last few years looking at food and how that says who we are. She also teaches a class about that to Fordham undergraduates. I chatted with Hall in our studios about her experiences with food. She says it does say more than we might think about who we are and also about who we want to be. I started out our conversation by asking her to tell me a story about food from her own life. Okay, I'll tell you a story that happened recently. Um, Last Father's Day, my cousins and I decided we'd have a Father's Day brunch. I made this big frittata that had, you know, eggs and cheese and leftover pasta and things in it. And my Uncle Clarence came in and said, this looks like something I won't like. I I had to explain to him then that had everything. Everything in it were things that he liked. He liked eggs. He liked cheese and pasta. And so he agreed to try it. He ended up liking it quite a bit. But it's very typical of my family, or of that part of my family. They're very conservative about their what they'll eat and what they'll kind of deign to consider food. My father is actually much more, even though they're brothers, he's much more adventurous. And he'll try almost anything, at least once. Um, even as he's looking askance, he'll put it in his mouth. <laughs> Now, you teach a course at Fordham about about food and literature. How do you try to get your students to think about food? I try to get them to think about food as a substance that carries stories and that forms social relationships. So I try to get them to think about food, its production, its consumption, how it's represented all as kind of sites for narrative and as things we need to kind of stop and pay attention to, um, which they're not really used to, actually. It's been very um, interesting. They don't, um, once they actually kind of get the point of it, they actually become very excited by the course, and they'll come in and tell me all kinds of food experiences they've had or how it relates to something in, in some of the readings we've, we've had. Uh, I, this year I gave them, I asked them to bring in, to, to find a recipe, because we'd been uh, reading several essays, MFK Fisher's Anatomy of a Recipe. So I, ha- I have them go find a recipe. They can go on the web, but I encourage them to, to get recipes they're familiar with and kind of take a new look at them. And actually, thanks to email, a lot of them wrote home and got their parents to either call them up and they wrote down the recipes, and they came and they told me why they wanted that specific recipe. And in- inevitably... The recipe is a story about their family, about uh, either their bonding with their mother. I think in almost all cases, it was a recipe from their mother. It was either some kind of food their mother made for them on special occasions or something that they just kind of associate with kind of really intimate bonding 
with a parent or with other members of the family. And so they were very happy to come in and tell me about those experiences. And they actually saw that, you know, that the recipe actually does kind of reflect certain values of their families as well as, you know, that the kind of social interactions with the family. Can you give me an example of, of how that would work? Well, actually, I'll give you an example that's not from class, but something we talked about in class. I know if you remember in the last presidential campaign, I think it's Good Housekeeping always has um, the First Wives Cookie Recipe Contest. During the um, the contest, Teresa Carey gave um, a recipe for pumpkin cookies, and Laura Bush gave a recipe for some version of chocolate chip cookies. And there was kind of multiple scandals. One was that that pumpkin recipe was a little bit out of touch. And so the, the recipe seemed to kind of reflect what the popular mind associated with these two women. So Laura Bush's recipe was kind of down home and very accessible and easy to make and something that felt like home. Teresa uh, Carey's recipe was seen as if too elite, for example, it had it, it. One of the ingredients was pumpkin puree, and the recipe specified not canned pumpkin. And I don't know if you've actually tried to find pumpkin puree, but it's very difficult to get. So people complained that the ingredients were inaccessible, and you know. Um, and then it came out that she actually hadn't given the recipe at all, but a staff member had done it. So it just reinforced the sense that Teresa Carey and, by extension, her husband were not truthful and not to be trusted. That's funny because uh, Teresa Hines also had another food-related scandal when she told um, farmers that they should go organic. Yes, yes. Um, and again, that that also kind of reinforced, if I'm remembering correctly, that you know this again the sense that she doesn't share the values that that you know the rest of us share. And this, you know, you can see this throughout a lot of modern presidencies—the kind of scandal over George Bush the senior admitting he didn't like broccoli, and you know Bill Clinton's eating of fast food, which was you know made him seem very accessible. And we pay a lot of attention to kind of what our public figures eat. And we feel that um, they, they share the qualities of what they eat. So what does food tell us about ourselves? I think food mostly tells us about ourselves and our relationship to the world. What we choose, because, you know, when we eat the things we eat become part of us. And so there is, even though we have, um, you know, even Americans have the, you know, or I guess especially Americans have the reputation for, you know, eating anything. There are certain things we won't eat. And what we won't eat actually, you know, says a lot about us. Food taboos and food rituals and food rules give meaning to our lives and they structure our lives. They slow down. We read an essay by a woman named Elizabeth Ehrlich who kind of chronicles her going back to Orthodox Judaism. And she talks about what it means to have to, when she gets hungry, to have to drive past all of these fast food places to go home to get something that fits within her dietary regimen. And so it it feels very inconvenient at first, but then she realizes it actually slows down her day. It makes her think more carefully about the food she eats and, you know, gives her a kind of another way of communicating with her family because they share this, you know, they, the whole family then comes to share this set of food rituals and to identify themselves through that sharing of rituals and taboos, even though we don't like the word taboos. So what won't Americans eat? Well, dogs we don't eat because they are, we see them as pets. It's almost, I think, for most Americans, a form of cannibalism. And I think that fear of consuming flesh and blood is also part of why we don't eat, want, want to eat raw meat. Now, in your class, you don't just read essays and things. You also have students act as sort of amateur anthropologists of their own eating lives. What kinds of stuff do they end up doing? 
one thing I have them do, we read an essay by another very well-known um, anthropologist, Mary Douglas, called Deciphering a Meal. And she actually tries to... Uh, bring anthropological principles home, as it were, and she kind of analyzes her the structure of her own family meals. And so I have the students, after they read this, to go and describe a meal. And it can be a meal they eat out or a meal in the dorm, but most of them describe meals at home. And they they kind of run the gamut. If, if I remember correctly, in the last group of students, not one of them talked about kind of an everyday meal. Families weren't necessarily sitting down to dinner every day, but they talked about the Sunday meal or Thanksgiving is always a big topic or Easter if it's the spring semester. One of them actually wrote a really charming little piece on um, macaroni and cheese and how at home for her macaroni and cheese is this kind of rich dish with lots of kind of butter and cheese and big chunks of macaroni, you know, big chunks of cheese and macaroni. But in the dorm, macaroni and cheese is some, something completely different and that the people have prepared in different ways, which I didn't realize. I just thought, you know, you put the boiling water in and you eat it. But people, she goes, you know, if, if they are feeling fancy, they add things to it. And sometimes people will add just kind of other ingredients to make a little casserole. Some people will try to doctor it up and make it, you know, taste more like macaroni and cheese. But she says it's clearly, you know, it's it's clearly a food of convenience and it's not something you like share with your friends and door, but mostly something that you eat at home alone or you're in a hurry, you're studying for it, for example. Um, and I had forgotten from my own, you know, college days how, how I think ramen noodles was <laughs> the big thing for us. But um, she certainly suggested there was a macaroni and cheese culture <laughs> in the dorms. Well, it's funny you mentioned it. I'll, I'll tell a short thing about macaroni and cheese in my own life, which is that my mother doesn't make it in the oven. She makes it on top of the stove and then she makes a cabbage salad and she mixes the cabbage salad in with the macaroni really? and cheese. Yeah. And I've never encountered another family where this was the case. I've never heard of that. And I never heard of macaroni and cheese casserole until I moved out of the house. And oh. I, I sort of felt like my own macaroni and cheese casserole, like my own version of it was kind of ghetto or something. Right. You know? right. So, <laughs> so I never made it. But now I know it's the best. Well, yes, it all, it's whatever mom's is always the best. But it, but macaroni and cheese is very interesting me. Um, dish in that way because it has key ingredients that make you identify it macaroni as macaroni and cheese, but you can go very kind of out of the box or you can get very elaborate. I remember um, watching the Food Network with one of my cousins and this guy was making macaroni and cheese. And there's another macaroni and cheese story in my family um, that this is related to. Um, we were trying to figure out what macaroni and cheese we might make. And this guy kind of took an onion, studded with cloves and infused the milk that he was going to use in the white sauce. And then he put in five different kinds of cheeses. And it was this really elaborate production that clearly would take all day. And so you can go from, you know, like I said, you know, craft out of the box to something that could be a really kind of uh, super elaborate meal. And the reason we were watching this is that I have an aunt who was renowned for her macaroni and cheese and um in fact, one year we had what I call the Great Pasta War of eighty five because um my mother my my one of my aunts has lived in Philadelphia, one in New York and you know, my parents in Baltimore. And so my aunts all converge and my aunt Brunel was going to make the macaroni and cheese, but my mother had forgotten to buy the macaroni. And so my uh, New York aunt, who is a part-time caterer, said, well, just use, she's got all this pasta in here. Just cut that up and use the pasta. And my aunt Brunel just went 
ballistic. You can't use pasta for macaroni and cheese. My other, it's the same thing. It's just, it's just, it's the same thing. It's all pasta, and they just, it just got so out of control. I couldn't believe my mother and I were just stunned at how kind of how much it escalated. But escalated. But it was really that they each felt like the other was encroaching on their turf. My aunt, as the known maker of macaroni and cheese, my other aunt is, you know, I'm a cook. I'm a professional cook. I know the difference between this. So my my aunt Brunel unfortunately passed away, and and we actually note for a couple of years nobody could make macaroni and cheese uh, for Thanksgiving dinner because we so associated with her. And so my my cousin and I were trying to figure out if there was the kind of macaroni and cheese we could make that was you know not that was good but not quite like her. So we could kind of reintroduce it into the family meal again because you know we all like macaroni and cheese. Well, it's funny that you say that about the different kinds of pasta because I cannot cook any kind of fancy pasta with macaroni. It just seems wrong. (laughs) But, I mean, if we're talking about food having a language, this is a great example because macaroni is not the same food as pasta. No, it is absolutely not. And pasta certainly has all kinds of, you know, connotations. And there are are all kinds of foods like that. Lettuce, you know, iceberg lettuce is not the same thing as mescaline. (laughs) Um, um, And, you know, the kind of foods we eat are very much associated with our class status. So food tells us not only what we are, but what we want to be. There are a lot of kind of class connotations with food. I know my own family, when I was uh, growing up, my father, who grew up, you know, not well off, he had meat once a, once a week on Sundays usually. And when he became employed and could afford it, he wanted meat on the table every day because that was a sign that he had made it and that, you know, he could afford to, to eat meat and give his children meat. And, you know, meat was the sign of, you know, his ability to provide for his family, his masculinity, you know, his arrival as a businessman. Well, I will close with this question. What is your favorite food and why? Oh, chocolate. (laughs) And do I have to explain why I like chocolate? (laughs) It's, it's always new every time I taste chocolate. Um, and I've kind of moved away from the kind of mass-produced chocolate, but chocolate has such a variation of taste. It's like wine almost. And I, and I actually am not good at, at telling differences in wine, but I can tell you the difference between different kinds of chocolate. And so it um, it has a kind of long after it has it has, a, it has an afterlife for me and it you know and I, I'm sure I am subject to the same kind of chemical uh, its chemical properties just like everybody else but um, it also blends well with other things I like like raspberry is an ice cream <laughs> so. great well thank you so much for coming in oh thank you so much it was great talking to you That was Kim Hall. She is a professor and the Malarkey Chair of Literature at Fordham University. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On this week's show, how would you react if you discovered your family had a secret fortune? More on that ahead on Cityscape. This morning on Fordham Conversations, we are looking at a couple of the things that make us who we are what we eat, and where we're from. For Fordham graduate Despina Hotsoglu and her mother, Theokli Hotsoglu, of Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, who they are has a pretty easy first answer. They're Greek, and they're American. I stopped by their house one night around supper time to talk about what this meant in their lives, how being Greek-American compared with being Greek, with being American, and with most non-Greeks' impression of being Greek-American, the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. 
Hi. Hi, are you Despina? Oh, yes. Hi, I'm, I'm Nora. It's nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for letting me come over. No problem. Hi, how are you? This is my mom, uh, Thelkli. Hi. And this is Nora. Nice to meet you. Thanks for talking to me. No problem. Uh, you want? It's a little bit warmer in there. I guess we should Everybody sit in here. Okay. Welcome to join us. <laughs> okay, my name is Theokli Hatsoglu. I'm Despina's mom. I came to the United States when I was 16 years old, 19, October of 1980, Columbus Day. I got married very soon. I finished here high school, and then uh, I had Espina. And after that, I started college, and I had two more kids during college. And then I went to work, and then I did my master's, and here we are today. <laughs> Um, that's Pina Khodzoglu, Thelki's daughter, obviously. Um, I have my undergrad degree from Fordham in psychology. I was born in Queens, Astoria, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then came, basically grew up in Brooklyn. And I guess I'll tell you what I'm doing right now. That would be good, right? Uh, I'm pursuing a master's degree in speech and language pathology. And I currently teach Greek dance. I'm a folk dance instructor at uh, four different schools, actually. So it's been pretty hectic this year between school and a bunch of screaming little Greek children <laughs> every day. So Greek school is a real thing? Yeah, it's uh, definitely real living and breathing <laughs> thing. Um, I guess, you know, all Greek children have nightmares about it, as well as a lot of fond memories. There's um, your day schools where they're private parochial schools, sort of like the way the Catholic schools are, where they're affiliated with the church. And um, in addition to your whole curriculum, you take a Greek class. Or there's your afternoon schools where children go two to three times a week after school to, you know, a building and they get Greek instruction and get screamed at by a Greek teacher, usually. Onikos <laughs> ehi. At Greek school, I learned valuable lessons like if Nick has one goat and Maria has nine, how soon will they marry? I think it's pretty cool. It did help keep my kids Greek and they can go to Greece almost every summer and we can communicate with their grandparents and read and write and speak Greek, which is pretty important to us. And uh, when we tell them a story about something Greek, they can understand it and they can laugh at the Greek jokes, which is pretty cool to laugh in two languages. Uh, my kids graduated from down there three years now, and I still participate in almost like 100% of the activities and all the events they do, and actually parading the parade with them, and I'm not even a parent, but it's a society. And I, I personally think it's nice to know you belong somewhere. You walk in a place and everybody knows you, and, and you, it's like a cliche, but, it, but it's so true, you feel safe. And in that, in that aspect, it's, it, was pretty, it was a very good experience for us. Why do you think that was really important to you? To belong? Well, for me, uh, coming here at 16, not speaking a word of English, and taking me about a year to, like, the way it describes it, like a curtain lift, lifted from my brain, and all of a sudden I started understanding people again. It's nice to go somewhere that you don't have to translate in your head. I mean, 20 years later now, I don't have to translate in my head. I, I actually... The joke in the family is I can drink, I can dream in English now, <laughs> but uh, you go there and you feel like I don't know how to explain it. Everybody says the same jokes and you can understand them, and you don't have to think about them. And the same old stories and and uh, the same familiar faces, and we talk about the same food, the moussaka, let's say, and we all know what it is, and you don't have to explain it, and 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 it's good. It just feels good. Two lamb. <laughs> 
There are two kinds of people, Greeks and everybody else who wished they was Greek. Okay, yes, we know. This is who you are. This is in your blood. If you don't fight for it, if you don't believe in it, if you don't feel it, then who will? Greece was uh, occupied for 400 years. If Greeks forgot who they were, they wouldn't have been in Greece today. And wouldn't that be a shame? So... I mean, they even. We, uh, um, we want our kids to know our history. And if you forget your history, you forget who you are. And yes, I'm an American, but I'm also Greek, and there's certain things that come with it that make America better. Some Americans, I mean, I, I definitely had friends in college. I don't think they identify with anything. I think some, some Americans are really vague on what is American. 9 11 kind of boosted everyone's you know, patriotism. But I do think there are a lot of Americans who just don't really, they just live here and they don't really know what it is to be an American. For, for Greek people, marrying Greek uh, for them is a way of continuing um, their culture. You know, it, it's much harder to raise your children just as Greek Americans when your spouse isn't Greek. Because one, you know, they might want to raise their child. I mean, let's say, you know, a man marries a Chinese woman, a Greek man marries a Chinese woman. She might want to raise her children according to the Chinese culture, which is obviously different than the Greek culture. All cultures are different. So number one, that's the one big thing against it. And for Greek people, you know, some of us are religion, some of us aren't, but religion is immersed into our culture. I mean, there's specific days where we go to church, whether you believe or you don't believe. So for Greeks, if you marry someone who's not Greek, then how do you bring them up as Greek Orthodox? You know, and do they speak Greek? Do you send them to Greek school? Do you not? So it's seen as taboo, I, I would guess, in my immediate family here, uh, everyone would be very distraught if any one of us married a well, non-Greek. But, um, I mean, I think my my parents would be upset and my mom might cry a little bit, but eventually she might... Uh, I, for me, for me, it's more... Being married, is, it's a very hard job. I don't know if you're married, but being married, it's hard. And to... Uh, to find another person that you can communicate and, and things to make the same sense as it makes to you, it's hard to find within your own community where you grew up with the same values, with the same, like, certain things meaning that having the same meaning for you. And and to go to another culture, like this one said, to then kids come. How do you raise them? Which religion do you follow? Which language do you teach? And if the kids don't speak the the mother language, then they will have no relationship most likely with their grandparents because, like in my family, my in-laws and my parents, they, they don't speak Greek. How are the English. kids going to... I mean, English. How are the kids going to communicate with them? How, they can say hi and how are you, but having a meaningful relationship and a meaningful conversation will be close to impossible. Well, my no. mother-in-law believes that uh, when a kid has fever... If you make a mixture for rubbing alcohol and ivory soap, it will bring down the fever. So when I got married, I was 18, and I had Despina at 19. So when Despina first had fever, and we lived in the same apartment building with my mother-in-law, 
she came, she showed me, and I used it, and it worked. So that's a family remedy. It works, and I'll use it even to my grandkids, if my kids yeah. allow me, I guess. And she, I mean, she used to make her own soap in the village. So yeah. she had, you know, I mean, my both, all four of my grandparents, uh, thank God, are still alive. And uh, the they grew up in villages, and they bring back all these home remedies and stories and herbs and things that you really don't know about today. Or, I mean, I, I guess not know about, but they kind of get lost um, with modern medicine. Um, well, so they bring this holistic Greek approach and they're, you know, constantly like, well, your tooth hurts, so why don't you put some ouzo on it? Or, you know... Um, you have a headache or the evil eye, so let's do a, like a little yeah, curse a thing little to, un- curse to you. it away. Or, you know, you're drunk... You should boil onions and put them on your body. Or um, uh, I didn't know that one. The, um, what's the other one? The oh, the venduzes. Venduzes are um, actually the, the sucking cups. The sucking cups where you put the yeah. So my my grandparents subscribe to all those things and the whole you know eat garlic constantly and well no, uh, your father's side it's garlic my oh, yeah, side doesn't yeah. eat garlic she hates garlic when I kids leave in the morning we cross them from afar so we can ward away all the evil and uh, we buy the little we call them the eyes it's really like a blue rock and it looks like it has a little eye on it and we have them wear it under the clothes so again they evil eye Greeks believe a lot in the evil eye and so you try to shush it away so what happens to people who, like, don't follow these home remedies? Oh, well, they're just doomed. Yeah, you know, I'm, for always, Greek I'm always amazed how only the, the Greeks get cursed by the evil eye. No, I think... Uh, My son doesn't believe yeah. that. My son um, makes fun of her because she believes it. Um, I don't... I mean, you know, you, you have your... Excuse me. You have Greek people who don't follow these things. And um, every time they're sick, you know, you have someone else saying, well, if they would have done that, then they would have felt so much better. But they don't want to listen. They've become too American now. I know my daughter, even though she was born here, she considers herself more Greek than American. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I might, I'm wavering. I, I did a lot of things here that I would never be able to do in Greece. That's when I went to Greece when... Greece was good for women. I grew up in a time when Greece wasn't that good for women. So it's a little different experience. And also she went down as a tourist mostly. Like her pocket was full of money and she could enjoy what she wanted to enjoy. Me growing up there, I was working on the farm and in the fields. And, and I wasn't going on vacations in the summer. When school was out, I was working in the fields. It was, it was a different experience. Um, if I have to think my life over, I would say I'm thankful to my parents for coming here at the point they came here. That's when I wish we would go back some days. <laughs> being Greek has a lot of good and a lot of bad things. Same thing as being American. So I was trying to teach my kids what was good from each one of the two societies, or what I considered good from the two societies. I, my kids never learned about Red Riding Hood because they learned about Alexander the Great or about Hercules, and that was the bedtime stories. I, I, I felt they had to be proud of who they were, not being ashamed, but not feel that that's all they are, because that's not all they are. They, they're Greek-Americans. It's, it's, it's a dual personality almost, and they have to live with it. Despina, I noticed when you, um, when you were talking about, like, earlier about, about Greeks, you said we. But <laughs> just now, when you were talking about, um, about Greeks in Greece, you said they. Yeah, and when you were talking it, about it, America, it goes, you said our country. Yeah, it goes back and forth. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm part of them, and I'm, and I'm not in a couple sense. I mean, when I go there... You can tell, when I go to Greece, they know that I'm not 
from Greece, but at the same time, they know that I'm very Greek. I'm accepted, but at the same time, I'm not fully one of them because I wasn't born there. I don't live with them every day, uh, you know, but they're me. They're part of me. They're my family. They're my friends and my relatives. Plus, when you go there, you do things that American people would do. Yeah. So you called an Americana. Like, yeah. they won't let me do the dishes when I go to my aunt's house because I waste too much water. Water over there, it's, it's a very precious, rare commodity. Yeah. It's very precious. It's very expensive. So you don't just let the faucet run when you brush your teeth and you don't just let the faucet run when you wash the oh, dishes. Oh, you shouldn't hear either. Yo, you shouldn't hear either. <laughs> but... Um, and, but at the same time, when I'm here, um, I'm American, but I'm a different type of American. I'm not a typical, like what would be considered a typical American. So I don't know if I'm necessarily, you know, here either. It's that, that sense of you're kind of in the middle. Like, where do I really belong? Do I belong with the, the Greeks? Not a hundred percent. So sometimes they're they and sometimes they're we. And do I belong only with the Americans? Not a hundred percent either. Cause I don't think I would be happy just, I mean, I wouldn't, I would probably be miserable if I didn't have anything Greek around me. But see, I, I don't dwell on the, the question, am I a Greek and I'm an American? That's where Americans are. We're all, all of us are dual personalities. Mm -hmm. All of us come from somewhere that, unless you're an American Indian, we all came from somewhere, and to a certain degree, we all carry with us whether we're here a generation or five generations. So I, I really do not dwell on the fact, am I Greek, am I American? I'm me. I'm, this is what makes us us here, all of us. You know, how many millions of people we are here? We all carry something from somewhere else, and that's what mm -hmm. makes this great. So, okay, uh, here tonight we have uh, apple and orange. Uh, we all uh, different, but uh, in the end, uh, we all fruit. <laughs> Wise words from My Big Fat Greek Wedding and from Despina and Theokli Hotsoglu of Brooklyn. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show this morning or if you would like to hear it again, there are a couple different ways to go. It's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's also in our audio archive. You can find that as well on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is FordhamConversations at WFUV.org, and we would love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend.